Well, you're listening to Copy Time, a podcast series on markets and economies from DBS Group Research. I'm Taimur Rubek, Chief Economist. Welcome to our 74th episode. Over the past two years of the global pandemic, we have focused like never before on healthcare and life sciences. No amount of economic or financial measures could help us overcome the pandemic. The solution had to come in in the form of vaccines and therapeutics from research and application developments. And for that, the world's hope rested on scientists and doctors, nurses and public health officials. So today, let's take a journey through the healthcare sector with Saul Magas, partner, life sciences and healthcare at EY. Saul has over two decades of experience in consulting in the industry. She has advised big pharma, emerging biopharma, medtech, diagnostics, consumer health companies, as well as trade associations, labs, and hospitals. All of this across a range of issues from strategy to organization and operations, and from R&D to commercial. Salma Gas, welcome to Kopi Time. Thank you so much. We're very excited to be here. It's an honor to be part of this podcast. Looking forward to the discussion. Pleasure to have you. So you have um, deep experience in strategy consulting in the healthcare and life sciences space. So let's begin with you perhaps sharing with us how the sector reacted and adjusted to the pandemic, both in the West, but as well as in Asia. Yeah. So you think it's a, it's a very good question. Um, Taimur, I think uh, a little bit like you mentioned, the, the first thing we have to, to do inevitably, right, is just acknowledge the the human impact, right, that this, this has had. And I think as of a few days ago, we were already at over 480 million cases uh, globally at uh, over 6 million deaths, right? So, yeah, the toll has really been um, extremely significant. Now, that, that said, right, um, what we find is that both in the West and in the East, the there's been two main uh, activities, right, that, that are two main uh, impacts that have uh, taken place. One is, as it happens, uh, and we've seen with prior crises, not only the SARS crisis, but also the global financial crisis, we've seen that the health and particularly the pharma science sector is a little bit more resilient than some other industries, right? So if one looks at the top 10 uh, less affected sectors by uh, diminishing like uh, shareholder returns, uh, life sciences will be around fourth or fifth, and then medical technology um, will be a little bit uh, a little bit further below, but still top ten, right? So that's something that we've seen um, generally, because it is obviously uh, a, a sector one that yeah, tends to be more resilient. There's less elasticity, less sensitivity, right? The, the prices, etc. So people unfortunately continue to seek, etc. In this case, though. Um, the other uh, impact that we've seen is a big drop in certain types of health activity, naturally, right? All resources turned in this emergency situation to uh, care for COVID uh, patients, right? And in the research and in the manufacturing arena, as you were saying, to manufacture and try to accelerate R&D for therapeutics, for vaccines, as well as for diagnostics and uh, supplies, the consumables, et cetera, related to the, to the, to the pandemic. So on the one hand, uh, yeah, more resilient industry. On the other hand, big push and acceleration with government and authorities' commitment to get to those vaccines as fast as possible, to get to some of the therapeutics 
for patients who are already infected as fast as possible. And we saw that in a matter of about six eight months uh, after the pandemic had started, we already had over 140 therapeutics in research, and we were already very close to having the first five or six vaccines um, approved, right, which is unprecedented in a, in a level of uh, global research a collaboration that, that we've not seen before. So that's, uh, that's encouraging. Now, on the other hand, if we look a little bit more at that drop in activity um, and by, by segment, we see first in 2020, a little bit more impact in Asia Pacific. And, but I would love to hear your point of view as well, obviously, as, a, as an expert, right? Than in um, a little bit less impact in Asia Pacific, sorry, than in the West and in the US um, in particular, in terms of the, in terms of the drop. Partly because Asia Pacific has already been growing pretty fast because we need to catch up in many of the markets, right? Yeah, that said, in what we've seen is the unplanned acute type of um, health needs, right? As well as the elective surgeries, right? Or, yeah, regular checkups and diagnostics, all of that suffered tremendously during the, the pandemic and is still below pre-pandemic levels, right? And just to give you one data point that I find very worrying, and we'll have some public health ramifications on the line. Um, when I was discussing to some of my clients that are the biggest players in oncology, they've seen in quite a few markets um, the rate of new cancer diagnostics drop to half the pre-pandemic levels, right? And obviously, epidemiology doesn't justify that. So, We'll, be, we'll, we'll have to face uh, cancers that are diagnosed later and therefore are more complex and, and also with other types of, uh, of diseases, right? Um, again, uh, elective surgeries for any spinal or any uh, orthopedic types of surgeries have been pushed back. Anything that was not life-threatening has been pushed back as much as, as possible. So all of that yeah, will we'll, we'll continue to have ramifications. So the industry has seen a, an increase in in activity and demand on, on diagnostics, on therapeutics and vaccines, and definitely a decrease um, in, in, other, in other activities and other therapeutics and, and supplies. Additionally, because of the supply chain disruptions, right, we've seen uh, big impacts on prices of some basic medicines, not only in the East, but also in the West, right? That has put additional uh, cost pressure. On the, on the systems, particularly those that are less developed or less or less mature. I would say these are some of the high level kind of big brush um, impacts that, that we've seen. But if you want, we can double click a little bit on the various uh, aspects or segments. Sure. So I remember at the very beginning of the pandemic, we had shortages everywhere, right? Even in Singapore, I think initially we were discouraging people from wearing masks because we didn't have enough masks for frontline workers. That I think got sorted out pretty quickly and the supply chain responded pretty fast. Um, but what is the situation now? I mean, is everybody manufacturing masks and PPEs locally or is it still mainly coming from China and going to the rest of the world? Yes, it is. Uh, there is some local manufacturing, but now, yeah, the supply chain has kind of stabilized. So there, there's still a lot uh, coming from, from China and other parts of, of the world. And yeah, the supply chain has yeah, re reset uh, a little bit. Once, when those shortages happened, as you mentioned, Singapore was very lucky. We were very lucky because they mobilized a lot of the semi-institutional players, right? 
who activated their own networks, right, and reprioritized their own work to make sure that they would connect to suppliers or that they would uh, yeah, turn some of their manufacturing facilities into manufacturing facilities that now were manufacturing masks or now we're manufacturing hand sanitizer, etc. In other countries, it wasn't as easy, right? And, and, and as fast to do that. Um, and then that's with masks, but we've seen also shortages with vaccines in quite a few countries, right? Including very developed uh, countries like uh, Australia because of challenges with procurement, more than supply chain, I would argue in that case. But yes, there's been, uh, this, that's, that has stabilized them significantly. What about the role of the public sector? I mean, we saw in the U.S., uh, Operation Warp Speed. And we also saw in China, of course, as always, you know, a lot of top down uh, uh, push to, to, you know, come up with a response to the crisis. Uh, what about sort of global experience? I mean, is it the case that, you know, more proactive public sectors have managed to actually get the best out of the private sector? Yeah, I would I would argue it is it is the case, right? Um, there are examples pretty much uh, yeah, everywhere, also across Europe of these emergency committees being being formed and actually being effective in uh, changing things on the ground. Uh, for instance, in, in the UK, uh, EY collaborated with uh, the military and the National Health Service under the, under the, uh, the supervision and the oversight of a newly created um, pandemic committee. And they built, uh, I think it was a, a pretty large hospital in about 19 days, when usually the time to, to build that type of uh, facility would have required at least nine months, right? So a lot of push to get the best resources and prioritize the, the resources for emergency response. I think we've seen that yeah, in most most countries. I think without the govern, that government commitment, um, it would have been much more tragic than it's already been in, in most countries. Yeah, like you say, not only China, uh, the US, but also Europe, and both across R&D, manufacturing, and then uh, infrastructure as well. Now, you mentioned earlier that there is this troubling probability that is sort of rising because people are scared to go to hospitals and they have not taken uh, diagnostics that they would have probably gone through every year. Uh, I think uh, you mentioned oncology. I think I specifically yeah. read about ovarian uh, diagnostics uh, oncology in the U.S. at collapsed by 50-60%. So the fear yes. is that there'll be a pickup in ovarian cancer detection going forward. Are we seeing healthcare systems, governments trying to make up for lost time? That Are there campaigns yeah. underway around the world to get people back into annual health checkups and diagnostics because we have sort of mm. lost time in the last couple of years? Yeah. If I, if I, my view, I don't know what you think. I'll be very keen to hear, but my view is I have not seen enough Me neither. Of, yep. uh, of, let's see, uh, right now that uh, one thing that I thought was very admirable, for example, in the UK, when that um, uh, emergency oversight committee saw that work was starting to slow down, they said, we are, we're not going to dismantle it, we're going to turn it into looking at other public health priorities. But this is going to take time much longer than we saw in terms of the, the crisis response. So I don't see yet enough focus there. I think we're still um, managing the variants, right? Uh, managing the boosters, uh, managing which cohorts of patients need to yeah, get uh, vaccinated and boosted, including children, including 
the vulnerable and looking at these measures. So I've not seen enough yet. Uh, I know quite a few pharma players and trade associations are really trying to put that in the agenda because they see, obviously, they can foresee, they have very good data, right? What these, as you say, the drop in diagnostics in ovarian, ovarian is a difficult cancer. So yeah, if it's caught late, yeah, it can be, it can be very problematic. So I have not seen enough uh, action there, but I'm, yeah, I'm confident that in the next few months, if things continue in this relatively positive trend, at least from a public health perspective, they'll shift attention to all those other priorities. Right. And I think it's important to recognize that it's not either or. I mean, we're not going to win conclusively against COVID in the next few months. It'll have to remain in our radar. But uh, I think we have neglected other things for a pretty long period. And it's time to sort of focus Precisely. on Precisely. Exactly. Exactly. And, uh, yeah, no, exactly. I know. Particularly, I this, sorry, go ahead, please. No, no, go ahead. No, just going to say, particularly these types of, I mentioned oncology partly because it was so top of the agenda of most governments, right? Pre-COVID. So yeah, it should just continue with that. They should just continue with those efforts. Right. I even worry about, you know, basic chronic illnesses, like, you know, people with kidney complications. I think one is very scared to go to a clinic and sit next to people who may or may not have COVID. And I, I sort of worry that if dialysis type care also has suffered because of this pandemic, because, you know, the fear factor of going to a hospital. Absolutely, absolutely. Because although we've seen that tremendous shift to telemedicine that peaked particularly in 2020, it seems like now it's starting to stabilize, especially in the West, although in Asia Pacific it continues to grow, probably because it comes from a, a lower basis and we need more, more general co healthcare coverage. But all those, those uh, things that have been successfully turned to telemedicine do not include these types of interventions that you mentioned, right? <clears throat> Dialysis, diagnostics, no matter uh, if you send all the imaging or you send the biopsies outside, which we were probably doing anyways, to analyze and do next generation sequencing and so on, the patient still has to go in for a, for a biopsy, right? Or just has to go in for the, for the MRIs and the scans to be, to be taken. So that those aspects uh, yeah, do present um, a, a bottleneck in a way. Absolutely. So I was going to ask you this question later, but I think it sort of dovetails with what we're discussing right now. We always say that, you know, a big crisis gives us lasting lessons on their legacies, uh, but perhaps not. Perhaps as soon as the crisis is over, we forget how bad things were and we just go back to square one. So what's your view? I mean, we've had this global crisis. At least on paper, we should realize that it's an interconnected world. Viruses respect no immigration requirement or visas. They just go from country to country. Even countries like Australia and New Zealand, so secluded, so careful, had you know the virus raging through their societies. Um, are you seeing a possible silver lining out of this crisis that we will come out of it recognizing our interdependence and focus on public health a little more? Yes, I, I, I definitely see that. Yes, I, I think... Um, all, all governments have recognized that the, the connectedness has been what's been what, what's allowed and enabled, for example, the fast development of the of the vaccine drugs, as well as the fast approval of some of the therapeutics, um, as well as exchanging data and insights, right, um, allowing to predict what's going to happen next in terms of the variants and the the number of deaths, the ICUs, etc. So. There's, I think there's a big, strong awareness of the benefits of that uh, connectivity and that collaboration. So I do trust that that is there to stay. 
uh, on the other hand, so that's that's more from a yeah, government perspective, government response, as well as um, yeah, R and D collaboration. On the other hand, I've also seen really uh, pharma and biopharma companies uh, having to rethink uh, significantly the way they organize themselves and the way they go to market. Right. So. Despite this, this tragedy, another silver lining that I see is, is I, I see a strong transformation, profound transformation of some of these players from relatively traditional, relatively conservative um, risk colors for very good reasons, right? Safety is at the heart of everything they do, and hence they have uh, highly regulated and have very strong compliance controls, and that will, will remain. But they've They've had to rethink, for example, how they are uh, focusing on their own customers, right? So say hospitals, doctors, etc. As a lot of this telehealth um, trend continues to happen, um, their own customers are not accessible face-to-face -face or have not been accessible face-to-face -face for a long time. So they've had to rediscover how to engage digitally with them, how to engage digitally and support uh, providers, labs, uh, hospitals, um, and they've had to rethink and really putting their customers at the center of, uh, of what they do. So we've advised various uh, companies that have completely changed their go-to-market models from the traditional functional siloed, you know, um, I do marketing, I do medical, I do sales, and, and we all do a little bit in parallel to to really streamlining a lot, uh, removing layers in the organization, increasing capabilities in data and analytics, increasing capabilities in insight generation and, and customer intimacy. So I, I see something that will be positive for, for the industry. Um, I see more innovation as well in terms of the way they leverage data, they use data. Before, naturally, before the pandemic, when it wasn't that difficult to run big trials, it's always difficult, but it wasn't that difficult to run big trials. Maybe we, yeah, we were starting to make efforts in leveraging data for the control arms, for instance, of clinical trials, but not tremendous amounts of efforts. Obviously, the pandemic has disrupted uh, R&D and clinical trials tremendously. Some trials had to be halted completely or enrollment was, was much slower. So many drugs have been delayed in, in coming to the market, but we're starting to make more efforts in what we call synthetic trials, mm -hmm. where, yes, we will have an arm of patients that are treated, but if we have very good data of patients that are virtually identical and we can mine a database, maybe we don't need to spend all that, all those resources, all that effort and all that time recruiting patients for the control arm, right? So that type of innovation is also something that I think is going to benefit us all by bringing solutions to the market sooner. Yeah, expectations are also going to be higher. I remember, yes. I saw, I'm sure you do too, that in the summer of 2020, the view was the vaccines were a couple of years away in the best case scenario. Uh, but now we can, we have shown the world that, you know, within a year, it can be possible to safely yes, yes. roll out a vaccine. So yes. next time there's a pandemic, your clients will be under even greater pressure <laughs> to come up with uh, yes. quick, quick solutions. I agree. I agree. Um, and frankly, at 20 years plus in the industry, and even, and I, and I work with a lot of vaccines players, and I was, I was blown away that yeah, not only they did it, but also it's, it's clearly, they clearly work and they are safe. 
So yeah, you're right. I, that's, I, I will, that's, that's a new standard. Indeed. I will share with you one anecdote. So I came back from Dubai last weekend. Uh, and before coming back to Dubai, I had to do a supervised uh, antigen rapid test. But I did it via Zoom. A Singaporean provider connected with me over Zoom. And they just watched me for 15 minutes, you know, putting the thing in my nose and then putting it in the cassette. And it yeah. was a fifth of the cost of a, you know, in-person ART test. And, uh, and it was seamless. This would have been unthinkable two years ago. Unthinkable. And it's amazing in Singapore that now that is quite common. And as you say, a fifth of the cost, much less of your time, no risk going to a healthcare facility where inevitably there, there are risks, not only yeah. COVID of infection, etc. Yes, with my mom who was visiting Singapore some months ago, also she had to have a, a checkup, and the first checkup was in person, the follow-ups. The Singapore clinic said let's do them over Zoom so she doesn't have to bother to come into the clinic. And uh, yeah, it was, it was that, that was fantastic. Also, as consumers, another trend that we see, right, as all, all of us as patients, as consumers have become yeah, more demanding, more demanding, more discerning. Uh, this is what we are asking for, right? So providers need to try to improve the experience that we have with healthcare as well. And on that particular issue, any difference between the East and the West, or we're seeing sort of expedited digitalization of healthcare services all across the world? Yeah, I think um, generally, uh, I don't see much difference. Uh, maybe the, the what's a little bit, yeah, um, that makes a difference, but it's not so much based on the digitalization, but the starting point, right, is that in, in the East, particularly some of the markets that were less mature or less developed, are leapfrogging, right? So many of them will start, some of the more rural or, or outer areas of certain countries, like Indonesia, like the Philippines, that have real accessibility issues, but the penetration of, of uh, smartphones is already extremely high, right? They will leapfrog to doing telemedicine without having gone through the more, the more access to the traditional infrastructure in some cases. But um, other than that, I think, yeah, we see generally um, similar trend, even in the East between markets that are uh, more mature, more infrastructure more developed like Korea or versus others. We see that, that, that switch. And interestingly, at the beginning of the pandemic, in some markets, like Korea was a very good example, where um, no one believed that doctors would ever kind of really turn to digital for, for their, their work. In a way, because we didn't have much choice, many did turn to, their, to, to digitalization. And uh, although there will, there will be a new normal, and it won't be all digital, of course, um, they will retain a level of, of digital, right? For the benefit of the patient, for their own benefit, so that's, um, that's encouraging. The other thing we've seen is it depends a lot on the types of doctors, right? Like even in Singapore, oncologists who uh, typically are very, uh, are quite a globally connected community of key opinion leaders because there's so much uh, advancement and, and progress, right? And experimentation. So they are used already more to webinars and seminars. They work in multidisciplinary teams traditionally. So in Singapore, oncologists were quite quick to adopt um, digital for their multidisciplinary teams, their tumor boards. However, in Singapore, psychiatrists, for instance, were much slower to make that shift because it's not something that they were used to, right? So it also depends a little bit on the specialty 
and the way they were working before, not only on the country and the, the culture. That's fascinating. And I'm really glad that you brought in the leapfrog argument because we've seen this over the last two decades. In poor countries, we saw uh, people leapfrog from having no phones to mobile. So landline was skipped. Uh, exactly. In places like India, we see people not even having access to banking services, but leapfrogging into fintech. Uh, exactly. So it seems that a lot of these acceleration of digitalization disproportionately helped the poorer uh, countries, the less developed countries that allow them to leapfrog. Uh, and, and I think on telehealth, I think anybody who has spent hours waiting in a hospital for the doctor to see them for five minutes, there's no going back. I think we will never want to repeat that experience and we'll want exactly. to have a digital window. Okay, enough about the pandemic. I think we're already shifting away from the pandemic. Let's talk about independent yes. of the pandemic. There are mega trends happening in this industry. Uh, share with us, you know, you, you work with all the big providers of healthcare. What are the big trends in pharma and biotech that uh, we should sort of talk about? Yeah, so I think uh, you were thinking a little bit about that as we were uh, getting ready, right? There's um, one, I have to repeat it because digitalization yeah, is, a, is, a, is a very important trend, as you say, pandemic or no pandemic. And it, it helps across, um, even with the challenge of affordability. We can touch on that a little bit later if you, if you want. Uh, we also see another mega trend definitely is a shift in the types of uh, portfolio, the types of R&D that is coming through the pipelines, right? Over the last 10 years, We've seen a very strong focus in oncology, in immunology, <clears throat> in rare disease as well, and in biologics, right? So I think until a couple of years ago, 40% um, of the drugs in the pipeline globally at any stage of development were oncologics, and three out of 10 were biologics, right? Um, and that was, that was great. It's tremendous amount of progress, great, better outcomes, so very positive. But in the last um, yeah, few years, we see an, an acceleration towards precision medicine, right? So very personalized medicine, particularly on the back of the explosion of, of genomics and next generation sequencing. We were looking recently at all the global and, and regional players that we have on that, that play in next generation sequencing, either um, as a solution for diagnostics, for R&D, for patient identification, um, as well as for treatments, then to determine what's the right treatment for, for a patient. And really, there's more than 20 that are very relevant players already, right? And, and again, it's not only oncology but and immunology, but also other types of, of diseases. So that's something that is going to change um, the, the prognosis for many diseases that before were life-threatening. And that now through... Um, the gen next generation sequencing, understanding their genome, genomic um, makeup, and then being able also to do cell and gene therapy, right? So do uh, alter the cells, alter the, the genes, uh, do interventions that in various time, various uh, instances are, are cure the condition, right? Even for leukemias and these types of, of diseases. So precision medicine, personalized medicine, cell and gene therapy is a big a big jump. And then additionally, vaccines and, and prevention in general, right? So um, we've seen big push in development of, of vaccines, programs that were already in place before the pandemic, but um, that continue to accelerate. I think they are helped by the increased awareness 
of vaccines from all of us and from all governments. But we have very important programs of vaccines development in HPV, in other respiratory conditions, in HIV, in some forms of cancer. So I think, yeah, early, early prevention vaccines uh, is going to be another big trend when it comes to the portfolio or the types of pipeline that uh, pharma and biotech are, are developing. The third one, which is quite impactful, maybe slightly slower, is digital therapeutics, right? There are already some digital therapeutics uh, approved. That is some apps, for instance, that help with um, the improvement of symptoms of Alzheimer or of Parkinson's disease through doing certain exercises. And they are trialed and they are FDA approved, just like pharmaceuticals are, right? They have a slightly different pathway and framework, but we see more and more digital therapeutics uh, as, as something quite promising, sometimes complementary to the existing arsenal that we have to fight a disease, say, particularly in, in central nervous system and dementia, um, but uh, sometimes as a, as a standalone, and that's quite uh, promising. Well, that's really, really fascinating. I'm very pleased to hear that. I think digital therapeutics makes all the sense in the world. I have to be honest, I have no idea, but it makes sense. Yeah. And, and I, I, I see the promise yeah. and the application. So yeah. the innovation, uh, both in terms of new you know, scientific breakthroughs, but as well as you know, improved innovative practices by embracing digitalization, are these all largely happening in the West and we're following here? Or are we seeing the Chinese companies or Southeast Asian companies or the Koreans, the Japanese, also part of this spectrum? Yeah. Excellent. So when it comes to product innovation or solution innovation, so say a cell and gene therapy, uh, genomics, testing, um, and so on, uh, Asia is extremely active. And in particular, China. We have uh, at any given point like hundreds of cells and gene therapy companies, many pre-revenue startups, um, but that have some have very good pathways and are probably some hope to, to then sell their, um, their assets and their technology to, to larger players. But there's a lot of innovation and research. And some of the big pharma players have set up some of their incubators and innovation labs in China as well, right? So yeah, some of the top immunology companies, top oncology uh, companies, even yeah, top respiratory companies have innovation and incubator labs in China. And they might have them as well, say, in Central Europe and, and the U.S., right? So from a product innovation, it is, it is great. One area where it's a little slower maybe is in terms of the uh, big data uh, and, and, and mining and getting insights from the big data. But it's just because there is less of that structured data readily available, right? In, in the U.S., in Europe, they've spent years already. Um, consolidating healthcare data and population-based data and census data. So now with the ability that we have to do advanced analytics and predictive analytics, they, they are in a, in a better position. Here, we still have to build a lot of that data. We're going fast, particularly countries like China and countries like Singapore, they are moving fast, but we're a little, a little behind, right? Um, in order to be able to, to, to do all the applications of advanced analytics and predictive analytics on, on our databases because they are not the same, right? Korea has fantastic data, but some of the other countries, particularly in Southeast Asia, um, are still uh, relatively behind, right? Some hospitals are digitalizing quick, 
as quickly as they can. They're installing new ERM systems, new data systems, but it, that takes a little bit of time to consolidate. Um, what about India? India. India is very interesting because um, in terms of the product innovation, maybe we see potentially a little bit less of that. So fantastic manufacturing, they still cover about 20% of the API manufacturing, about 80% of the finished product manufacturing of uh, traditional pharmaceuticals. So uh, extremely uh, powerful uh, footprint from a manufacturing uh, perspective. Obviously, mm, very interesting and uh, an attractive market because of its uh, sheer sheer size. But I think we've seen a little bit less of product innovation, less than we've seen in China. And partly, sometimes there are certain concerns around IP protection and um, you know the level the level of yeah, of guarantee that that uh, companies have when they run some of these programs there. Um, however, in India, because they're also kind of leap, leapfrogging, right? Uh, we've seen examples of that unbanked uh, population that you were mentioning, the same unbanked population that exists in India or in Vietnam. We've seen some very good uh, fintech solutions um, coming up for health for that for that type of population, right? That is, in particular, a company called uh, Arogia Finance. You might be familiar with them. They, they have an algorithm, a proprietary algorithm, that in a very short period of time, I think in maximum of two days, uh, retrieves enough information about a family that may not have traditional banking solutions in place, right? And can determine whether they could uh, provide them a loan for healthcare interventions. I think it started with some implants in the cardiovascular space, and now it's expanded to other therapy areas, and the rate of default is extremely low. So we see these types of, of solutions that really move the needle um, happening uh, more and more. And similarly as well, maybe with the consolidation and aggregation of, of uh, data and, um, and the supply chain, right? As you know, retailers are extremely fragmented, right? So now there are various companies that are connecting them and um, helping them, say, with inventory management, with uh, mining some of their data, and in exchange, they get the consumer data and they may get a procurement platform on the back of it, right? So there are some of these solutions that are quite uh, promising. So that that innovation is definitely present. We see it in India, quite, quite a few good examples. Well, that's great, great insight. Now, all this innovation and the R&D, this expensive stuff, and we've already seen some fights break out between manufacturers and regulators wanting to not allow the prices to go up. And the manufacturers are saying, well, next time there'll be no innovation if you keep on doing this. So let me ask you the tough questions. I don't expect you to give me a definitive answer, but I will hear your view because you deal with this, I'm sure. That, you know, how do companies and governments strike that balance between the cost of new medicine research and breakthrough and affordability? Yeah. So uh, for now, I'm not sure they, I mean, they do, there's big efforts behind it, but for now, they, they're, there's still big gaps in affordability, right? And if we look at um, the more developing or less mature markets, what's happening, even as, as, they, as they increase their universal healthcare coverage, and we've seen that happening, well, even in very advanced societies like uh, Korea with extremely good healthcare, they've been expanding universal healthcare. Uh, coverage in the Philippines, in Indonesia, in Vietnam, right? Um, in Malaysia. 
But what, hap- what that means is really population coverage, right? So often it's the basics. And what happens is that some of the most advanced technologies or some of these, these interventions that we are saying are very promising and are extremely expensive to develop get squeezed out of the public system. So um, what we see is an increasing desire to create public and private partnerships, an increasing desire to explore uh, fintech, insurtech solutions that uh, can have a reach and a scale that before wasn't thinkable and, and really can provide some of these affordability uh, answers, right? So there'll be, we'll see more and more um, of these private um, solutions. Uh, again, in India, there's the, the some Tofi InsurTech that and because of the scale, they are able to uh, provide very low uh, cost insurance for, against things like breast cancer and uh, prostate cancer as well. And they even do campaigns that would say, like for Mother's Day, maybe you can give that insurance to your mom uh, via social media, et cetera, right? And, and if it reaches that critical mass through InsureTech, which before was absolutely unmanageable, uh, it becomes a viable uh, product, right? Similarly, in China, we've seen a lot of crowd uh, sourcing, very effective, although it has some regulatory challenges and the, the landscape might change now. But um, we see these new types of solutions that, that allow uh, more and more of the population to access where governments might not be able to reach on their own. So, so the final question is this overarching theme of healthcare security. You know, we're worried about food security, energy security, but also I think the last two years pandemic has shown that everybody needs to have greater stockpiles of you know, emergency supply of things because emergencies seem to be coming with greater frequency these days. Um, do you see you know, the healthcare sector going moving closer to the government as a result that the government would either by mandate or through subsidies uh, procure a lot of you know, things to keep in storage and also yeah. try to subsidize yeah. the cost of uh, next round of R&D? Yeah, I think on the first part, definitely, right? I, I see that they are going to want to have more control over certain uh, yeah, manufacturing capabilities, and they're going to be able to mandate to have certain uh, stocks and inventory in the countries. We've seen various examples of, of that. More control or more funding over uh, R&D depends a little bit on the, on the country. Um, there, there's some skepticism, right? Some say that it's not a model that works particularly well, just like the academic model doesn't seem to be the fastest or the most productive. So there, the jury's still out. Um, but I guess in terms of mandating, yeah, that certain uh, stocks inventory remains here. Uh, I, I think that that is something that we are going to see different shapes in depending on the types of regimens and political uh, kind of systems. But but in subsequent form, we'll see it. We'll see it everywhere. In terms of R and D, some uh, countries are pushing for promoting a lot of, again, incubators and innovation-based platforms. So they will supply uh, funding, they will supply coaching, they will supply some infrastructure and logistics, right, to to promote um, that type of innovation from in-house. But other countries, I don't think, are going to be that inclined to to invest there. But yeah, what, what do you think? Well, I think that uh, you're sort of hinting at the answer that I was looking for, which is a bottom-up ecosystem makes sense. Uh, regulating you know, from a top-down perspective and putting on mandates on big companies, 
I don't think works that well. Uh, yeah. So, so I think to the extent that you know you create a system where a lot of young people do set up companies which come up with amazing ideas like an mRNA concept and then become a big company, uh, which of all the countries, Germany has shown us that it can be done from concept to fruition within a decade or a little more than that. Uh, I think that that's instructive and hopefully that is a yeah. path that countries follow because that's the two the right yeah. way of doing that. Exactly, exactly. So anything that helps shape the ecosystem, right? So that there's more of that kind of ground, uh, but from a private perspective, uh, the sector perspective is is really good. For instance, um, yeah, Alibaba and Pfizer um, is in the public domain, of course. Uh, created with the Singapore FinTech Academy, uh, a health a healthcare FinTech kind of a plan that from uh, uh, asks startups to pitch for their potential fintech solutions for health and pharma, right? And that's getting from startups and, and yeah, small companies to also even university teams looking to see what solutions could be could be exciting and interesting, right? And then those who win get uh, quite a bit of help. Um, yeah, I think pro- provides some of the, the bandwidth, um, provides some of the coaching and some of the technical aspects are uh, provided by the Singapore Fintech Academy, but it's these types of, of solutions, like you say, that use the bottom-up ground are, are very promising. I think that's a good note to end on. Uh, so, my guys, thank you so much for your time and insights. Thank you, Taimur. I've really enjoyed our conversation as always, and thank you very much for having me. It's been an yeah. honor. It's, it's been great, and thank you to our listeners as well. Kopi Time was produced by Ken Delridge from Spy Studios. Daisy Sharma and Violet Lee provided additional production assistance. This is a podcast for information only and does not represent any trade recommendations. All 74 episodes of Copy Time are available now on YouTube and all major podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, and Spotify. As for our research publications, webinars, and live streams, you can find them all by Googling PBS Research Library. Have a great day. Thank you.